you will, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. That may sound like a broken record, but we have not yet plumbed the depths of that which has occupied us in seven messages thus far regarding Romans 12, specifically verses 1 and 2. We are continuing in our series entitled Living as a Sacrifice, which is designed to cover Romans 12, 1 and 2, and many of the implications it shows us about the Christian life. Last time we left off with a discussion about the concepts surrounding Paul's phrase in Romans 12, 2 regarding the will of God. If you remember, I mentioned to you last week that the Bible speaks of the will of God in different senses. There is one sense that I mentioned to you in which you and I cannot in any way alter the will of God. That is because there is a sense in which the will of God is the unalterable, unchanging, sovereign decree of God that no human being can fully know or can thwart. And we refer to this sense of God's will as the sovereign decree or purpose or design of God because in the secret counsels of God within the Trinity, these things are hidden to us as human beings. We do not come into play with God by way of changing or altering His sovereign choices. Uh, The decree of sovereign election is an example, I think I mentioned to you last time, in which God's will and within the secret domain of God He gives us what He wills, and we simply watch the unfolding of it in our lives. But we can't do anything about this will of His, but simply admire it and see the goodness of God in it. This decretive will of God, as it is sometimes called, is the first and foremost sense of His will. And we talked about it very briefly last time. There is also another sense to the will of God that is often expressed as the biblically revealed will of God, or as some might say, the commanded will of God, or the preceptive will of God, based on the precepts of God as it has been revealed to us in Holy Scripture. That is, the will of God that He gives to us, clearly revealed in His commands and His prohibitions, His principles, by which we govern our lives as believers. In other words, He wills that we do some things in our Christian life, and He wills that we abstain from other things in our lives so that what He wills and what we obey and what we stay away from is for our own joy and obedience. It's to enhance our Christian lives. And it is that kind of will, very specifically, that I think Paul has reference to here in Romans 12.2, when he refers to the will of God for the Christian. What we do and what we sense in our own lives of the will of God is open to us in our Bibles. And it is for us to study carefully and apply the truths contained therein so that we might have that wonderful and fulfilling joy and obedience which God wills that we have. There are things that are revealed to us that are either right or wrong, and they are specifically given to us so that we might know the will of God. Prohibitions, injunctions, commands, precepts, laws, in order to live His will out. Now those are the two primary, and in one sense we could say, the only wills of God, as it were. But there is, I think, a sense in which there is, when we discuss the providence of God, Something of a subcategory to this matter of the will of God. And I said that to you last time, didn't I? It could be that Paul is referring to another sense of God's will here, maybe in a secondary sense, to the primary idea of the commands of Scripture. And this is what we have heard termed the providence of God, the providential will of God, or the guidance of God, or the leading of God, or the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you want to be particular about it, it may even be better and far more precise to place this sense of God's will under the category of the sovereign will of God. Yes, in one sense, when we see the commands of Scripture, the injunctions, the prohibitions, the laws, the principles, we could place His guidance underneath that category. But it seems to me that it's better to place the providential leading of God underneath the banner of His overall sovereignty. This sense of knowing the will of God is what we might call, if there is a subcategory, called the collective wisdom of God. The collective wisdom of God. Or your perception or my perception of God's will where we have a growing confidence in His leading, His providence, whereby we make decisions in the Christian life based upon the collective wisdom that God has given to us in His Word. Now, you notice why I would put that then under a subcategory when we talk about either the sovereignty of God or even the sovereignty of God as expressed to us in the Word of God because there is no difference in the sense in which we attempt to know the will of God but then by going to Scripture. Just like the commands that are explicitly given to us, we don't need to go anywhere else. We don't need to go to any other source. We certainly don't need to appeal to our own sense of intuition, our own sense of the the Word of God as mediated through our impressions, as some people try to tell us. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It just means we cannot put them on a par with Scripture. And when we look at the plan of God, the providence of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, we try to understand it just like we understand the commands of God, the prohibitions, the injunctions, the laws, the principles. We go to the Word of God. We may go in a different method, a different sense, and that is to try to find out what implicit principles are there. Now, what about illustrations or object lessons that someone who God describes in Scripture could be helpful to us to find the course and the direction of our lives? This might include, by the way, any scriptural illustrations of how believers, as we find them in the pages of Scripture, worked out the providence of God in their own lives, gleaning something from their experiences, knowing full and complete in our understanding is that each of those illustrations, each of those stories in the biblical accounts all must be understood in their proper context. Never taking it out, as some people have done, saying, well, I need to determine the direction of God by putting out a fleece. Or I need to fulfill my vow, like Jephthah's vow, for instance, or something like that in which they find a verse, they find something in the Bible in which they say, aha, that's an opportunity for me to know the will of God. You have to understand the context properly, so-called, always and forever. But there is, based even beyond these commands clearly, these clear injunctions and prohibitions, the sense in which you know your Bible well enough that when the daily decisions of life come to you, you can instinctively, through those daily decisions, ask yourself the question, what does the collective wisdom of God say? What is the sanctified wisdom potentially on this subject? And I think there is a sense in which Paul might be implying this very thing in the context of Romans 12:2, when he says the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is what we are to find, to follow, to discern, to determine. It's a worthy pursuit. And I know that there are some Christians who unwittingly take this whole context, even from Romans 12:2, this discerning the good and acceptable and perfect will of God and go off into all directions as to what it might mean and how you find this good and, and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want you to notice something, though, from Romans 12:2. Notice that when he does say in the latter part of verse 2 that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, it is not divorced from verse 2a, and that is do not be conformed to this world, which means you don't go to the world to find out what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, unless you see it, of course, by way of its utter contrast. 
But notice it's never divorced from that middle part of verse 2, this will of God, and that is this, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't ever divorce Romans 12.2b from Romans 12.2a. You discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God by the transformation of your renewed Christian mind. Listen carefully. The transformation of the life, the life of the Christian, will be directly related to the renewal of the mind. The transformation of the life will be directly related to the Christian mind, to the renewal of that mind. And that renewal of the Christian mind will be directly related to the understanding and application in and to that life as revealed by God's Word. Never divorce from God's Word. Even when you can't find explicit principles to go from in the daily decisions of your life, you must still forever and always immerse yourself in Scripture so that even in your daily decisions, even in the things that seem somewhat subjective, maybe even at times somewhat arbitrary, you must still immerse yourself in the transforming work of the renewal of the power of God in the life of your soul through your understanding of God's Word. And if you don't, then there will be a slow and retarded renewal of the mind. And with the slow and retarded renewal of the mind, there will be the hindered and malformed transformation of the life. When I counsel people, when I talk with fellow believers, those who profess faith in Christ, and often as they are going through struggles, some of it is as clear as those explicit commands, injunctions, prohibitions, laws, principles of Scripture. Some of it is as simple as that. Some of it is not so simple. And some of the daily struggles of life in the various areas of life and decision-making which are not so simple, are still even more difficult for some people who have not, as a pattern of life, immersed themselves in Scripture so that they could make those decisions in far easier ways because their whole life is an understanding of the book, the Word of God. All of the implicit principles, all of the illustrations, all of the accounts which, through their proper contexts, and in understanding how they fit with the whole of Scripture can be so very useful in the renewal of the mind and the transformation of the life. And I do admit that for all of us who profess Christ, even if we were very diligent to search the Scriptures for all that God would have us do and know in our Christian walks, we sometimes, all of us, struggle with specific direction, don't we? All of us do. I mentioned last time a couple of those. Where will I live? Whom shall I marry? Shall I be married? How many children should we have? What kind of job should I pursue? What shall I major in college? Should I go to college? What is it that God has called me to do vocationally in my life? And for those kinds of questions and a thousand more, we want to know God's direction, God's purpose, whether it's general, as Scripture gives those general commands, and very, very specific ideas about me as an individual Christian. What is the Lord's plan? And as I said, I think in some ways, while the primary element here is on the Scripture as revealed to us by way of these commands, I think there is implicit here direction for us by way of the complete renewal of the mind. God wants to bless us. He wants us to know His plan. He wants us to know His specific will as revealed in Scripture, and He wants us to know what we are to do in our lives. He wants us to have the joy of looking back at all of His providential leadings and that we rejoice that He led us all the way. He wants us to be encouraged by that. And I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know these things at least as much as you can know them. 
It's very, very important for us to know these things. As I'm being daily conformed to the image of Christ, I want to know as an encouraged believer that I'm following the direction of God, that I'm doing what He wants me to do, that I'm making good and godly decisions. I want to know that I have the entirety of biblical revelation, not just mere intuitions and impressions and words from the Lord or thoughts from the Holy Spirit, which can be very misleading. I want to know in the totality of the objective revelation of God, the the Word of God, that I am making good and godly decisions. And you have that, my friends, at your fingertips. You have that at your very fingertips. All of the divinely revealed accounts of people and issues and situations and scenarios so that all of us can determine as best we can what God wants us to do in the here and now. And then when we look back at the unfolding of His providence, in hindsight, we'll look back on those things and say, Oh Lord, thank You for blessing me. Thank You for leading me. Thank You for giving me direction in my life. Now we have to be careful, as we always do, that when we say something like that, we don't presume, especially on the front end, that God is in fact leading us. And I mentioned to you last time that there are a lot of people who blame the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the guidance of God on a lot of things that obviously didn't turn out to be His leading. And we need to be humble enough to say maybe even several times in the daily decisions of our life, if not in the balance of our life itself, that we must be more humble as we communicate what it is the Lord is leading us to do. This is is an exercise just like James 4 says. If the Lord wills, we will go here and do this or that. We will go and make business. We will make merchandise. We will do whatever it is that we are in our daily decisions attempting to do. But that, that little phrase there, Deo Valenti in the Latin, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And of course, I know that some people are going to say, but I don't know what the will of the Lord is. So I just assume I'll make the best decisions I can and hope they are His will. And then when I look back on them, I'll presume or I'll confess that it really wasn't His leading. But even in that, my friends, it gives that sense of doubt, that sense of uncertainty. And while none of us can claim 100% certainty, there is a whole host of things in the Word of God that will help us that if we know it, and if we know it like the back of our hand, we will be helped far better than we ever thought we could, even from the Word of God, even from implicit places, even from those areas where we did not ourselves even think that that's where the Word of God is leading us and guiding us and directing us. And it is to that very place where we left off last time. And I told you that I wanted to start in the next couple of messages in this series to talk about this very matter of how can I have greater certainty, how can I have a greater assurance that I am making good and godly daily decisions, that I am attempting with all of my heart to pursue the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for me, even in the providential areas of His direction and leading. And I want you in the next couple of weeks to to expand your thinking with me on this matter of what I call collectively now, corporately, the Christian mind. The Christian mind. I'm going to call upon you and myself, of course, as well, to develop what we could collectively call the Christian mind. Why? Because, frankly, I think, especially in America, and especially over the last 50 years or so, or maybe even longer, we have, in my judgment, become almost extinct in evangelicalism regarding this matter of the Christian mind. It is almost virtually gone. The literature that I read, the things that I peruse with regard to evangelicalism itself, the the landscape of it, the fiber and fabric of it is almost completely mindless. It is almost embarrassing for a person even today to call 
himself or herself an evangelical because almost automatically, even especially not just with the world and their perceptions of us, but even with some of our own brethren, that we hardly even know what that word means anymore. Even the, the very word evangelicalism has become something that is ill-defined and frankly not that compelling. And I'm calling on us, this church, the Bible Church of Little Rock, to cultivate in our lives this aspect of the Christian life which is so important, and that is called the Christian mind. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, but we have, you fill in the rest, we have the mind of Christ. Now, how is it that we can have the mind of Christ stated to us so plainly in Scripture, and yet the very mind of the body of Christ we call evangelicalism today is a mindlessness. It's not deep. It's not penetrating. It's not compelling. It's not the kind of thing for which we could say with confidence and with assurance that we see evangelicalism, the collective mind, having a Christian mind. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we have this time at no other time, no other time in the history of the world, the greatest, most stunning and vast arrays of tools to help us understand the deep riches of the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about computers. I'm not just talking about technology. I'm talking about technology and books and resources and booklets and pamphlets and sermons that are so available to us in our Christian culture as at no other time in the history of the world. Wayne Mack and I were emailing early this morning and I told him about this particular series that we were experiencing and he said, oh, I want to be able to listen to that. How can I listen to that? And with the touch, the click of a button, I can say go to www.bclr.org and look on the right-hand side of the page and look at online sermons. Click on, there, on that online sermon and you can listen to all of those sermons from your computer with the click of a button. It's amazing. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law who are missionaries in Ireland will communicate to us and say, hey, that was a great message on Sunday. We listened to it Sunday night, Monday morning in Ireland. It's amazing what God has brought to us. And even with all of the evils and even all of the things that I talk about that are negative with regard to the media, etc., etc., is still in the very providence of God so very good for the instruction of God's people, even if they are halfway around the world who don't themselves have resources, who don't have books and booklets and pamphlets and materials and sermons themselves in their own hands. They are blessed. We are blessed as never before. And I submit to you that the reason why we are blessed as we are, especially in America, is not because we have availed ourselves of all those blessings and we're doing well and that the Christian mind is depth-filled and it is a Christian mind that is growing and maturing, I submit to you that it may very well be the judgment of God. The blessing of God is the judgment of God. Because as you and I are blessed with all of these materials, will we avail ourselves of it? And if we don't, I think we're going to be chastised by the Lord. The Lord is going to chastise us. Didn't I give you all of this, He says? Didn't I bless you in my providence with all these things? Didn't I make all of these resources available to you? And I don't mean just things about the Bible that help us understand the Bible, as wonderful as they are, even the Bible itself being available in all translations, in all of its fullness, in all of its wonder, in all of its beauty, available also at the click of a button. There are blind people who can hear the Word of God in ways that they could never do so before. Or see the Word of God. And there are Deaf people who can hear the Word of God as they never could before. There are people that have physical challenges like those and more that have every opportunity now to avail themselves of the Word of God. 
There are people around the world who, if they had one one hundredth of my library, would thank God profusely. You know, people come into my library either here at home and they look at all of those books and they say, have you read all of them? And I usually joke with them and say some of them even twice. And they laugh and we laugh about that, but sometimes I go away from that thinking, you know, if somebody in Africa like my like my friends where I went this summer with Pastor Todd and Pastor James in Zambia, Africa, Conrad and Bayway and some of his brethren, if they had one one hundredth of the library that I possess, they would probably be far grander and greater Christians than I ever hoped to be. Because they often do without. And when they receive, they are blessed. And they they scour. And they take all of these things at their disposal and they use them for great profit. And I guess I would say as an indictment either of my own life or of ours, are we availing ourselves of these things? Do we take the opportunity with the multitudinous numbers of Bibles that we have, even on our own shelves, or do they collect dust on the coffee table? Do we read? Do we study? Do we develop? Do we progress in this cultivation of our Christian mind? I believe this is the providential leading of God. I believe that one of the things that we can see in least my judgment that's evident from Romans 12 too, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is revealed to us in the providence of God as He's given us so much for which we can study and read and learn and understand about the Bible. This is the good and acceptable and perfect providential leading of God. And I ask myself the question and I ask you the question, how can you fight against being conformed to the image of this world and its perpetual evil without working hard at cultivating your Christian mind? I submit to you, to you, you cannot. You cannot do that. You will utterly fail if you attempt to read a few Bible verses a day or a week and then expect that this will suffice. It won't. What Scripture provides, even when we're speaking about some of these very subjective areas of our daily decision-making, as I said last time, is a road map with signposts and markers clearly given. Some of them not always as explicit as you and I would like, but signposts and markers nonetheless. And it may even be that the Lord hasn't given us everything so clearly and so precisely in the signposts and the markers so that you and I would work even harder to determine the areas of the daily decisions of our life that we need to make. Maybe He wants us to work harder in these ways so that we can be brought safely in our travels. You might go in this direction because that's the daily decision you made. And I might go in this direction because that's the daily decision that I have made. But maybe in the providence of God, we're both going in different directions because we have different thoughts and different ways of solving problems and issues. But we all get to the destination. And when we look back, we see that God in His wonderful providence has blessed all of us with the precise will that He has for us. You could go here or you could go there. And you could take some kind of intended destination and direction. And when you arrive, you look back and you see God's good and acceptable and perfect will having been worked out in your life. But I tell you, it will not happen if you do not fully immerse yourself in the Word of God and develop a Christian mind. Because when you work it out in your life according to God's Word, you're going to have a divine positioning system. You want a DPS. You don't want a GPS. Because even though those things are really, really neat, and in some people's minds almost infallible, God's Word is infallible. And even in the daily decisions of our lives, I want divine help. And without utilizing my divine positional system, being enveloped and enmeshed in the thinking which all Christian minds must practice regularly, then I'm not going to have the confidence that I'm making good directional decisions. I'm not going to be sure that I'm reaching the destination that I otherwise need to travel. And I want to help you with that this morning. I want 
to begin to talk about the cultivation of this aspect of the Christian mind. And I want to do so by showing you a myriad of passages real quickly as it relates to even what the Scripture says. I could give you all kinds of quotes. I could give you all kinds of illustrations. I could give you all kinds of warnings from other Christian leaders and the books that they've written, which I've read for this series, to try to say, what is the Christian mind and how do you develop it and how do you cultivate the Christian mind? And so many of those are so helpful. And if we can get to those, we will. But I want to show you what the Word of God says about the Christian mind. And I want to start by showing you a word, nous, in the Greek text, which is the word for mind, which is something that talks about our way of thinking, our intellect, and not just information and data, but how to think, our understanding of things, and how Scripture tells us that we should cultivate and pursue and use our Christian mind. And in order for us to do this, I want you to look back at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I want you to see the text that we talked about very briefly last time. And I'm not going to talk about just the Christian mind and all the things we ought to do positively and proactively. I'm also going to show you what Scripture talks about in general about the mind, even from a negative vantage point. And Romans 128 is certainly one of those. Romans 128, and this is the fallenness of man. This is man fallen in Adam. Romans 128, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Remember I said to you that that was ad dokimos, a little alpha privative negating the word. Dokimos means tested and found worthy, tested and found proven. This is somebody who's tested and been found unworthy, unproven, rejected. And that's what we are in Adam. God gave us up to a debased mind. That's not the kind of mind we need to have. We need to have a renewed mind, a Christian mind. And that's where we go. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Collective singular. It's talking about all of us. Your mind, the body of Christ, the church. Not just individual Christians. More importantly, the Christian mind as it relates to the body of Christ. If we, if we have been delivered from the fall of Adam, if we're outside Adam's race now, and we're being brought into the realm of Christ, the sphere, the dominion of Christ, Christ says, this is what my body, this is what the church must cultivate, the Christian mind. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll see the similar idea here in chapter 4, verse 17. Again, contrasting... The mind of the unbeliever, the mind of those in Adam, and the mind of those in Christ, believing people, Christian people. Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, notice this, in the futility of their minds. That's the word noose. Futile minds. Now look down at verse 23. But here's the Christian mind now and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Renewed by its very verbal idea. Keep undergoing perpetual renewal. That's the development, that's the cultivation of the Christian mind. That's what we're all about as believers. We're new in Christ now. We have to... Not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is how important the New Testament places on this matter of the Christian mind. Chapter 2, verse 2. Verse 1 says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the context, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, because they've been told something differently other than what Paul taught, verse 2, not to be Quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He says, verse five, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He says, watch out for those who are giving you a tradition other than the one that we gave. And you take that tradition, which is none other 
than the inspired Word of God, and you read it and you study it, and you know it so well that when something's false, when someone says, I've got a letter from the Lord, you go on a bookstore today, you go into B. Dalton or Books a Million or any of the other bookstores around, and you will see all of these books that say, The Lost Books of the Bible. And I read on the covers and the flaps, and I read how the church, quote-unquote, how Christianity has just missed it for millennia because they had otherwise important documents that they've never read, they've never studied, they don't know, and so therefore you're missing out on vital aspects of your Christian life. Not so. Not so. If it's not in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, it's false. And you cannot be shaken from your mind. Titus 2.15. Same idea. Christian mind. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And for what? Back to verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded. There's so much in God's Word about the mind and how we are to cultivate the mind. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. This is, this is telling us how we are to think about thinking, about the mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, this is the church, the body of Christ in Corinth, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. All of these having, having the force of a collective even if the word is singular, you, your, it's talking about the church. It's talking about Corinth. This is what we're all supposed to develop. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Philippians 4, 7. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what am I supposed to do? Verse 8 tells you, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there be anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned, that's as a result of your mind apprehending truth, received and heard and seen, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Colossians chapter 2, just... One book over. This is from a negative vantage point. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, Paul says, to the church, the church at Colossae, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Mind's important, folks. Vitally important. We're not called as believers to have sluggish minds, but minds that are thinking clearly about the things of the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. These are in the context of false teachers again. 1 Timothy 6, 5. And constant friction about people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. All of these references are... This Greek word noose, which talks about thinking, rationality, understanding. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. If you're corrupt in your mind, you've been disqualified from the faith. And those are all pretty specific, and they're talking in that sort of uh, collective singular or the force of a collective singular where it's talking about us as a church. And that's why I say we must develop ourselves as a church, the Christian mind. 
no premium on shabbiness with regard to our thinking, with regard to our mind. Look back at Romans, the very book we've been studying, chapter 7, for maybe even some general uses of this word noose. Chapter 7, verse 23. He says, I see in my members this battle that he wages in his sanctification, does Paul. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the only one that that can deliver me from this. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's a battle, folks. It's a battle for the mind. How are you doing with the battle in your mind? Are you waging it accurately? Are you assessing things with your thinking? Are you cogitating on the truth? Chapter 11, verse 34. You say, well, how do I do it? Just know this as much as you humanly can do. Romans 11:34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? You say, certainly not me. Well, try your very best to know the mind of the Lord. Know His mind. What does He think? You know how, as best friends, you get some news or you're concerned about something or you want to make a good decision or you're troubled about something and you want to call your best friend. You want to call somebody that you trust. How about calling upon the Lord? How about seeking His mind? What is your will on this matter? What do you think, Lord? Look at chapter 14 of Romans. Verse 5. Romans 14.5. This is, this is even in the context of things that are opinions that some Christians can hold in one way and other Christians can hold in another way. And notice what he says about the cultivation of the Christian mind. Romans 14.5. One person esteems one day, like the Sabbath or something like that, as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Notice what he says. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Well, how can you be fully convinced in your own mind if you're not using your mind? If you're not thinking clearly, if you're not using the rational capacities that God has blessed you with to understand how decisions are to be made. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 16. This is that wonderful passage to which I alluded for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? A lot like Romans 11.34. But we, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Can you say that confidently? Can you say, I have the mind of Christ. I want to cultivate that in my life. Whether it's collective or individual sense, I want the church to grow in its maturing of the mind of Christ. I want to grow individually. I love what our own Dr. George Zimmick said in an article that he wrote on this on this very issue called aiming the mind, a key to godly living. He said the only cure for mankind's inflated and perverted noose mind is the noon Christu, the mind of Christ. If you have an inflated and perverted mind, you come to Jesus Christ, the only cure for not only the salvation issues, but the sanctification issues in your life is the noon Christu, the mind of Christ. Look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 14. It says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, don't do something for which your mind is not engaged. Verse 19 Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And there are other related words, enoia, epinoia, that speak of the Christian mind. The Bible so multifaceted that it doesn't just use one word, it uses other words. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is, this is the mining of the Word of God to show us what is expected of us and what the Word of God tells us about our, our Christian mind and how to use it. Chapter 4, verse 12, very familiar passage to us. 
Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. And if I'm going too fast, just write them down and look at them later. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. This is an amazing verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Then don't live any longer for human passions, but look, look to Christ who suffered in His humanity and arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Same way of thinking. The mind of Christ. The pattern of Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 22. Another use of this word epinoia. Wonderful. Very instructive. This isn't in a context where you can often say to yourself, well, here's a great verse that I can use about developing my Christian mind. You might not even think of it that way. But listen to what Peter says when he confronts Simon the magician. Verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. He wanted to extort the use of the Holy Spirit by paying them money. And he said in verse 19, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is an illegitimate use of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, repent, turn, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. It's always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the mind. The intent, the thoughts of your heart. Epinoia. One commentator, Getzman, writes this, There can be no such thing as neutral thinking. Man is always aiming at something. Always aiming at something. What are you aiming at? At what direction are you aiming? Are you aiming toward holy purposes? Is that the intent of your heart, even when you mess up, to repent, to turn to do the right thing, to have the right kinds of attitudes. It's all a matter of the cultivation of the intentions of your heart. There's even another word, dianoia. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. wish we didn't have to go so fast, but Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is a context of the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make, God says, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. You know that in the New Covenant, unlike the Old Covenant, that God is going to be placing by His Holy Spirit the very laws, the stipulations, the Word of God into our hearts, into our minds. Same thing, so that we can know what is expected of us. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Same idea. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And it comes from the cultivation of knowing it in a more deeper and more intimate way when you study it to its depths. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Know that it says true here. Him who is true. How do you know what is true? You have to cultivate your mind. You have to know what is false. You have to know what is true. How many times, even in this chapter, does it talk about believing, trusting, knowing? Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is 
This is amazing. Look back at Luke chapter 1. This is, this is just a, a scratching of the surface of this matter of the development of the Christian mind, just from the Word of God itself and what it says to us about our cultivated Christian mind. Luke 1.51, Mary's Magnificat. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Dia naema. It's, it's this concept that the proud, the arrogant, the boastful, their, their proud behavior is directly related to the fact that they are wild in their thoughts. Wild in the thoughts of their heart. Chapter 11 of Luke, verse 17. Jesus Himself but He, knowing their thoughts. Folks, it always comes down to the issue of your thinking. Always will. What do you think? What occupies your mind? Are you cultivating a Christian mind? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. This is, this is what the world is. This is what we were, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Oh, but thank God for chapter 4, verse 18. Even though unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous. But he says, verse 20, that's not the way you learned Christ. You're different. You're on a different plane, a different sphere. You want to take up your Bibles now and you want to read and study and know the Word of God. And with all of these resources available to us, how come we are not availing ourselves of it more deeply? It's the same thing in Colossians 1.21. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But you've been, you've been made alive in Christ. This is, this is almost a lost art in the church to cultivate this thing we call the mind. We let our minds become so shabby and so lazy and listless and lethargic. I hear people sometimes say, well, there are times when I am so tired after work that I just go and I sit in front of the television and veg. That's, that's not healthy. It's not spiritually healthy. There's no premium on that. You know, that's probably exactly what Satan would want us to do. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is probably part and parcel of the evil temptations of the world. Chapter 4, verse 4. Did you not read that it says, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, In their case, the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You think if he's blinding the minds of unbelievers with regard to the gospel, he'd also want to blind the minds of believers by trivi trivialities and trash. Chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I'm afraid... Telling the Corinthians, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Beloved, I fear that we as a church, I fear for myself that we would be deceived like Eve by Satan's craftiness, his, his cunning behavior, so that my own thoughts will be led astray from the purity and simplicity of my devotion to Christ. It's a war. We are involved in a major skirmish. And that's why chapter 10 says this. Chapter 10, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, that means we're human beings, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't use human weaponry. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but have divine power. There's that divine positioning system. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then he says this, we destroy what? Arguments. That's thinking. That's thinking. That's logic. That's ideas. That's ideologies. And it's dressed up like it's this mighty fortress. And he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I like to translate it, we destroy arguments and every pretension raised up against what is true about God. You a warrior like that? Can't be if you don't develop your mind. This is... This is Paul defending his own ministry. This is what his methodology was. Dr. Zemeck writes, this is so good. If you don't listen to anything else, just hear him preach to you through this. Our responsibility, whether perceived corporately or individually, must be to turn every thought into a prisoner of war, which is obedient to Christ. Because that's what he says. We are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive, prisoner of war, to obey Jesus Christ. We destroy arguments, logismus, and every pretension, every lofty opinion that raises itself up to the stature of one of God's own thoughts. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the audacity of Satan? And what he does to try to ply his trade with us. That God's thoughts are lofty, high, lifted up, majestic, supreme, glorious, beautiful, wonderful. And Satan has the audacity to raise up arguments logical ideologies, anything he can, raising them up to the very pretentious notion that they would be equal to the very truth of the thoughts of God? No wonder he's going to be judged forever. No wonder we should understand the battle that is raging with us. I implore all of us, myself chiefly, We need to do a much better job of renewing our minds. I close with this. Look in your Bibles. Two quick passages. The book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. This is what we need. First in our salvation and then in our sanctification. Acts chapter 16. I love this. And he uses even the one of the words we've been tracing through. Dianoia. And he even uses cardia, the the Greek word for heart here, when he talks about Lydia. Look at chapter 16. One who heard, one who heard the gospel, one who heard, by the way, somebody who's hearing the gospel, they're hearing thoughts about Jesus, right? It's all about thoughts. It's all about listening. It's all about learning. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She was a God-fearing person. And then notice that next line. The Lord opened her heart. Opened. Dianoia. The Lord has to do it. And yet when He opens our heart, we must respond. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she did. And she was baptized. And she immediately began to serve. And was genuinely downcast when people had to leave. And she prevailed upon them to stay and to minister to them. We have to have the Lord opening our heart, don't we? And yet when He opens that heart, we need to do everything we can on a human level to say, Lord, pour it in. Pour it in. Last one, Luke 24. I know I've hit you with a ton of verses. I hope it's been helpful. Luke 24. I had to end here. 
Luke, who of course wrote the book of Acts, says what he says about Lydia. And Dr. Luke also uses that same Greek word, dianoia, talking about an opening. And he even uses the word noose for mind. And he says, quoting Jesus, verse 44, Luke 24, then he said to them, these were these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas was one. We don't know the name of the other. And Jesus said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then this amazing verse, then he opened their minds open. Dianoia. It's a mind word. He opened their minds. It's a renewal word. It's a born again word. It's a miraculous word. He opened their minds. That's the, that's the process. And then he moves into the vehicle to be opened, their minds. And then what does he open their minds to do? Sit at home and veg? No. To understand the Scriptures. So that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of My Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And He teaches them, and He teaches them, and beginning with Moses, back to verse 27, and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things Concerning himself. So they drew near, verse 28, to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. Don't you know that they were just thrilled? He went in and stayed with them, even, even though at that point they didn't know what they had right in their midst, in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened. You know, in every act of salvation, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, in every act of salvation, your heart, your eyes, your mind, your thoughts were opened to the reality of Jesus Christ and he is looking to you by his spirit and through his power to pour into that mind Christian truth. Reading the Bible, studying it, reading books, Looking online, do whatever you can do to pour the Scripture into your soul. And they recognized Him. And He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Cleopas and the other disciple, and no doubt appearing to his own disciples, as verse 36 through the rest of the chapter attests, and Cleopas and his brethren and the apostles themselves heard him expounding the Scriptures and they wanted more because he opened their hearts and he was just pouring all the Scriptures. Do you think that you would be able to make better daily life decisions if the Scriptures were poured into you like that? What are you aiming at? Are you aiming at knowing the Scripture to that degree that your life is intended for that very purpose? To know Christ, the true one, the one whom God has sent. Let's know Him like that. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, Cleopas and his brother, disciple, they were, they were mesmerized by the opening of their hearts by Jesus. And the disciples, including those around them like Cleopas and his brother, disciple, heard the Scriptures in a way that they'd never heard it before.
And they didn't even have what we have. We have this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit who pours into our minds the very laws which they had to study with their eyes to know. We have it in our bosom. We have it in our hearts. And yet we don't know it as we should. And I pray for my own life, Lord, and for the lives of my brethren here, that we would develop and cultivate this Christian mind that you've given us, and that we wouldn't be consumed with all the trivialities of life, and that our daily decisions would be impacted by everything explicit and everything implicit that you would teach us and tell us to know. Oh Lord, please develop in this church, this body, this people, the collective Christian mind for which you would take us to new heights, new vistas of joy and obedience. Don't let us be sluggish, Lord. Don't let us be involved in the conforming temptations of the world. Let us read and reread and meditate and respond and think and memorize this book so that even the daily decisions of our lives give us confidence and assurance that we're walking according to your will. We thank you for challenging our hearts today to develop our Christian mind. May it glorify you in our thoughts, in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.